finished last week sharing with you on forgiveness and uh, completed that four-week series. And I have a word today I want to share uh, that the Lord began to uh, just mess around in my heart a little bit. I had mentioned on the blog, anybody ever read the Legacy blog? Just out of curiosity. Okay, well, I'm glad to know that. I always wonder if I'm just typing out into cyberspace and if anybody reads that or not. So it's good to see that some folks read that. If, if you've never gone to the Legacy blog, you can go ahead and hit the website and it'll link you up there. But I mentioned on the blog site that I felt like the Spirit of God was talking to me about some things about vision and calling and future and direction and uh, it was all good. I mentioned the myriad of feelings that happened. Guys, I feel really hot. And I'm in the mic. <laughs> Trace is down here going, you hot, baby. That's right. No, it's in the microphone. The microphone. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I listed all of these emotions that are attached to whenever God begins to speak with you. You know, a lot of times you're excited. A lot of times you're challenged. Sometimes you're convicted, uh, you know, you're determined. It just means everything when you feel like the Lord is specifically talking to you about some things. And I want to share some of that with you today. Um, those of you that have been with me for the years now, in fact, I was, I was visiting over the weekend with uh, Miss Louise. You've been, we would say 11 years now. You've been here and I think prices have been about 11 years. It's amazing. We ought to get you guys trophies or something or a plaque. Yeah, you've, you've, you've held on through these. There may be some others of you that have been here all through the years, and uh, some of you still long-termers. But uh, you've heard me teach before on the concept of worldview. And I don't have time, and I'm really, I'm really praying that maybe in August, as, especially as school starts and into September, I may just spend some time on this particular subject. It may not mean much to you now, but I, I suspect after we're done this morning, it'll mean a whole lot more to you. Worldview, this isn't on the screen, guys. I'm off in another direction. Worldview is the, really, literally, is the way you view the world. It is a set of presuppositions that you live with, whether it be consciously or unconsciously. It is a set of presuppositions that are inside of you with which you begin to interpret everything around you. It, it, in other words, it's kind of like the lenses on your glasses. Everything that comes your way, everything that comes into your life, you filter into your being and you begin to make decisions out of it. You begin to, to make choices. You have perspectives. You generate feelings. All sorts of things begin to happen through your worldview. Your worldview. Now, <clears throat> simply said, if you, have, if you have an ungodly worldview and you look at all the things that go on in the world, you would probably interpret those events in a different way than a person who might have a Christian worldview. It, that seems to make sense, doesn't it? You would interpret your life and events and things that happen in such a way as to accommodate certain beliefs that you hold. Well, everybody has a worldview. Nobody in this room can walk out of here today and say, I don't have a worldview. Yes, you do. You may not know it, but you got one. And the reason this is so important is because our worldview will determine all of the decisions, the directions, the guidance, our, 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 
our sense of life and how we're going to navigate life. And if we don't get that right, how many of you know if you've got a screwed up pair of glasses, you ought not be driving? You understand how that works? If your lenses are messed up in your glasses and you go out and drive that car, there's one of several things that are going to happen. You either won't get to where you're supposed to be or you're going to crash along the way. Are you hearing me? So if your lenses of your life aren't right, you're not going to get ultimately where, where you think you need to be. Or you're going to crash along the way. And herein lies a very critical point for even believers. Most believers, despite the fact they've opened up their life, received Jesus Christ, sought forgiveness for their sins, they've made confessions of faith, all of these things are wonderful and good. Here is the problem with most believers still. They're wearing the same glasses they wore when they weren't believers. So despite the fact that you're forgiven, it's not getting you to where you thought you were headed and you are really confused and you don't understand and you're not really putting the pieces together. And, and so these last few weeks, I have just been in several situations. I cannot share with you all the situations. I may share with you a little bit later. I know that'll pique your interest to wonder what in the world did he face? But I just was involved in several situations at several different levels, most of them most of them on a personal basis, had nothing to do with church life. But after moving through these circumstances these last few weeks, I came to the realization again just how far our world and how even the body of Christ has drifted from the concept of Christ's total rule in our life. Now, that should come as no surprise that the world doesn't get it. But you would think that the body of Christ would sort of get that Jesus rules, wouldn't you? Well, you'd think. So I want to begin to just share a couple of things through these last couple of weeks that just were connected back inside of me on what lordship and rulership really mean. And I'm going to make it real practical, hopefully, as we get to the end here. Christians as a whole have done one of two things. I put this on the screen, guys. Go ahead and start flashing some things. We have, we have really two forms of, of rulership in the body of Christ. And these are, not, these are not appropriate ways, but two forms that I have run into. Number one, for many people, when it comes to Jesus being king in their life, what that means to them is he has become a figurehead king. In other words, they will say Jesus is Lord, yes, Jesus is king, but in reality, he's kind of a figurehead king. He's not really involved in many of the decisions they make. He's not really involved in their day-to-day -day life. He's not really involved in what they should or shouldn't do or where they're going or how they do it. He's not involved. He's sort of like the Queen of England. You know, the Queen of England is a figurehead queen. You know, everybody loves her. They'll run to the gates of Buckingham Palace. They'll say, long live the Queen. Everybody wants the Queen to wave to them. They'll take tours of the house. But in all practical day-to-day -day national activity in the United Kingdom, the queen does not have much influence. She just rides around in her carriage and waves her hand. She's a figurehead queen. The, 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 the mechanisms and structures of government are what begin to bring real practical rulership into people's lives of the United Kingdom. Well, to be candid with you, Jesus has become that in some people's life. He's this figurehead king that he waves to us and we wave to him maybe every week or two or ten and 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 we recognize him and we'll say he's king but for all practical 
practical things going on in our life, he's not really exercising true rule. That's number one. Number two is, and this I find all the time, is what I call compartmentalization. Isn't that a cool word? Say that five times fast. Compartmentalization. Compartmentalization. (laughs) Well, we won't do that. Compartmentalization. What does that mean? It means this, that we have allowed the Lord to rule only over certain aspects or certain compartments in our life. Now imagine with me for just a moment that you and I are like a house. In fact, the Bible says we're a temple. So imagine for us, with us for us just a moment that, that, that our, our, our body or our life is like a house. And in this house, we have rooms. It's the house of our life. And there are all these rooms in this house. And what we do is we let him rule over one or two of those rooms. But the rest of the rooms are sort of off limits. Now, can I just share this with many people? Their closets are off limits. You've got things in your closet that Jesus isn't ruling over. And so there's at least a closet or two in most people's life that they're not going to let Jesus get into. Now, I also put in there the garage. Because you keep your car in the garage and the car gets you where you need to go. And for a lot of people, Jesus doesn't really rule much about where they go and the direction of their life and how they're going to get there. They'll pull in all sorts of other things in order to give them a, a sense of counsel. But does Jesus rule over where you're going? And I could make all sorts of illustrations, but I think you get the point. That there are certain rooms, certain compartments, certain aspects where he rules... But he doesn't rule over it all. I just want to share this with you. Jesus is more than a compartment of your life. And so what happens is we have developed this, this cultural, and in fact, I think it's an American thing. I don't think this happens in a lot of other nations. But in America particularly, we have developed this cultural concept of Christianity that acknowledges Jesus and his ways and his kingly stature at very superficial levels. We, we let him into a room or two, but we don't really let him into our whole life. For many people, Christianity is a lot like soccer practice. Are you with me? Christianity is a lot like music lessons. It's a lot like cotillion lessons. I mean, it's funny how people will scramble to get their children to cotillion lessons because they want to be sure somehow or another they're groomed in order to have an entrance into the most uh, elite aspects of society. And we'll scramble our way all around to get them to certain things. But it amazes me how oftentimes when it comes to Christianity, that's sort of like just a compartment. It's a program that that fits into our otherwise busy schedule. And and it's needed. We're not saying, now don't misunderstand, we're not saying that Christianity isn't needed because all of us need a little moral guidance. All of us need a reminder from time to time not to be so selfish. We should love other people. We should live beyond ourselves. And so there's certainly a place for these things in our life. But the problem is, is that Jesus didn't die for a part of your life. He died for all of your life. Christianity is not a part of my life. It is my life. Are you hearing me? It's not my program. It's not my self-help program. It is my life. I exchanged my life with his life. He affects everything I do. Every decision I make. Every, every place I go. I would think if you're going to change jobs, he would be 
the first and number one consideration in your job changes, your career aspirations, who you're going to marry, what school you need to go to, where you're going to live, how I'm going to live, how much should I spend, do I really need this? I mean, everything in life is affected because it's not just a program, he is my life. And the reason much of life doesn't work for people, even Christian people, is because we never let the king rule it all. Oh, you can have this room, but I'm keeping this room. Jesus is not a negotiator. He's not negotiating with you. He's not negotiating with you about what he gets to rule and what he doesn't get to rule. It's an all or nothing deal. It's amazing, if you'll just read the Bible again, how demanding the Lord can be. Can you, be, can you believe? Drop your nets, leave it all, follow me. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And, and so we've got to understand that Jesus is a real ruler. Now, I want to read to you some verses that um, every time I read these verses, I just like it blows me away. In the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, I was looking through my files, and do you know that I have probably preached from these verses more than any other single passage in the Bible. And I can tell you why. It's because of his rulership. But in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it says this. He has delivered us, meaning the Lord, he has delivered us from the power of darkness. Isn't that good news? And it says that he conveyed or he transferred us into the kingdom. Now you understand... Where, where did the Lord translate you into? He translated you not into a republic, not into a democracy. Are you hearing me? He, he, he translated you into a kingdom. And a kingdom, by its very nature, has at its head what? Isn't that neat? You see, you just got revelation right there. Isn't it amazing? Conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, we're going to begin reading that word all many, many times here in these passages. You've heard me say, jokingly, on more occasions than you can count, and now it has become an old joke that you simply chuckle because you want to humor me. But what does all mean? That's right. It means all. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Listen to this now. Listen, really listen. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, I believe that, and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and what say that again for him one more time for him get now you got to get this this is really remarkable everything in the earth was created for him for him everything for him wherever you work was created for him wherever you go to school was created for him everything wherever you go shop for groceries was created for him Now, there are some things that were created for him that have become convoluted and twisted and and absolutely despicable. But listen, it even says what can happen 
in, in, in that regard, it says, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. I like that verse too, because uh, in that 17th verse, what he's saying there is, is that if you don't get him involved in whatever it is you're doing, it won't consist. Are you hearing me? It won't work. If he's not involved in your job decisions, if he's not involved in your future decisions, if he's not involved in what you spend your money on, if he's not involved in all of these aspects of your life, it won't, it won't consist. It won't work right. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, are you hearing that again? All things, he may have what? The preeminence. So everything in life was designed in order that Jesus Christ himself might have preeminence. Athletic events, sports events, politics, business. Doesn't matter what arena of life, every arena of life, I'm not saying these things are wrong, I'm just simply saying all of these areas of life were designed in order that he might have preeminence, and it doesn't work right unless he's in the midst of it. Now I'm going to go on and talk a little bit more about that. Said in verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Now here's the cool part, verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So what he says here is this. He says that when Jesus came, that his full intent was to redeem or reconcile everything back to himself. Now there's an early church theologian. I, I realize none of you care about this. It's just something I read because I'm just weird. But there's a guy by the name of Hippolytus. How, how would you like to be born and your parents name you Hippolytus? I mean, there's something just quite, not quite right about that. But, but I want you to listen. He says something here that I put part of it on the screen. And guys, you can put it's the last part, but listen to what he said. He said, when Christ's cosmic battle, and he's talking about Jesus dying on the cross, when it came to an end, the heavens shook, the stones split open, and the world might well have perished. You remember when Jesus died on the cross, everything got dark, earthquakes took place, all of the universe began to go into cataclysmic spinning as the Son of God was being crucified. It says, he said, that the world might well have perished. And then when he ascended, his divine spirit gave life and strength to the tottering world. And the whole universe, it says on the screen overhead, and the whole universe became stable once more. As if the stretching out, or as if the cross and the agony of the cross had in some way gotten into everything. The cross was meant to get into everything. It doesn't matter what area of life it may be, the cross was designed to get into that area. You know what? I've heard people say this before. They've said, you know, I don't need anybody in my business. I'm here to tell you, if you want Jesus as Lord, he's going to get in your business. When Adam and Eve fell, all of creation fell with them. When sin entered into the planet, all of a sudden, all of creation fell under the curse. Every area, I mean, we have no problem oftentimes 
pronouncing the awesomeness of sin. It is amazing to me how in the church world we give sin such a high and notable place in our preaching. Sin bad, sin bad bad, sin real bad, don't sin. And I mean we'll just talk about sin and the awesomeness of sin and the stain of sin and we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and I'm just a sinner saved by grace and sin, 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 sin. We have got no trouble believing that all of creation including us fell with sin. But this is the important part we don't link to all of this. That if everything has fallen, then nothing is neutral. Are you hearing me? Nothing is neutral. There's no such thing in this world as neutral. In fact, most people don't know that the biblical word for neutral is the word sloth. People think sloth means lazy. In fact, some of your translations even translate the word sloth lazy. It really doesn't mean lazy. It means neutral. Can I just share this with you? Neutral is not a good thing. Even in God's eyes, he says this, I would that you you be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. I don't want you neutral. I'd rather you just be all out for the devil or all out for me, but there's really no such thing as neutral. And and so we've kind of sort of created on our own this concept of neutral, but nothing's neutral. Everything has been stained by sin. Which is the reason why the cross is so important because the cross carries with it the capacity to redeem and reconcile all things back to him. Now, Satan, obviously, in the fall, because he duped both Adam and Eve, became, the scripture tells us, the God of this world. Little g, not big g, little g. He became the God of this world. In fact, the word cosmos for the word world actually means something other than just dirt and soil. It means the way things work, the order of things. Cosmos is where we get, ladies, I'm sorry, the word cosmetics from. I always kind of joke and say, you know, cosmetics is to put that which is out of order in order. But all the men are grateful for it. Amen. All right. But, but it's the order of things. Cosmos is the way things work, the order of things. Satan is the god of this world. He is the ruler of the order of things or the way things work. Do I have to illustrate that to you too much? Do you know that right now there is a rulership that takes place in every arena of life? I mean, if I were to say to you that the devil's involved in politics, would that surprise you? The devil's involved in commerce and business and the marketplace, would that surprise you? The devil's involved in athletic events. In sports, would that surprise you? The devil's involved in science and literature. How about in economics? Would it surprise you to hear that the enemy may be involved in these things? What about our government and the justice system? Now, I give you all of these general areas, and these are all just theoretical concepts, but let's just start getting real practical so you can understand who's ruling certain aspects of life. I mean, there are people right now who go to work all week and they work at their jobs and they're probably being paid less for their job than they probably deserve, but it really doesn't matter because all the money they get, they're going to spend on their drinking and on their drugs and buy lottery tickets down the road, which leads them to being in poverty, to broken relationships, to eventually losing their job because they pawned off all the tools that they were supposed to be using with their boss. And now I want to ask you, who rules in all of that? You understand who's ruling that? 
What about people that have anger that are, that's out of control and, and it's abusive or addictions that lead to stealing or friendships that are based on immoral or illicit bounds? Who's ruling? What about science that ignores God? What about them saying life is pure chance and and, and we came here from this coagulated goo that somehow blew up in the universe and it threw it all in the right order and we just showed up. Who rules in all of that? Come on now, when you pay $4 for a gallon of gas and you're wondering how you're going to drive to work and you watch CEOs make gajillions of dollars and let me just share with you, I'm all for a profit. But I mean when we aren't allowed to drill in certain areas so we can sustain who we are as a people and yet we'll support Middle Eastern countries who want to kill us who's ruling in all of this stuff are you with me come on now open your eyes this is a worldview I'm talking about do you get who's ruling our problem isn't just Osama bin Laden our problem is Satan I mean, you can't turn on TV, you can't go to see a movie, you can't hardly turn on your radio without being defiled. He is the prince and the power of the air, is he not? I could go down the list and teach you over and over and over and over again about the stain of sin. And you've been probably taught pretty well. There was kind of a hearty amen in there as I went through all of this. We see the fallenness, the sinfulness of all that exists around us. But let me give you the good news. See, this is good news. We're good news people. The good news is, it is God's desire and it was his plan to send his son to die on a cross, according to Colossians 1, in order to reconcile or redeem all of that stuff back unto himself. That's why he's the God of justice. That's why he's the God that's against poverty. That's why he's a God that wants his people to succeed and prosper and rule righteously and for fairness and justice and all of these concepts to be in the earth. It is his desire that everything we do somehow give him the preeminence in that. Jesus was destined to rule in all things. That is why it says that we were translated, we were conveyed from the from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. I was taken, I don't know about you, but for me, I was taken out of darkness. And I was sat right down in here with him. In the kingdom. I don't have a foot in the kingdom and a foot in darkness. Good news, lock, stock, and barrel. When Jesus came and got me, he just packed up my whole mess took it with him, plopped it in his kingdom, and said, by my blood, I'll reconcile all that back. Now, we got to get a hold of this because, because that's where we're living, in his kingdom. He's my king. It's not a compartment of my life. He's not just this little room. He's everything to me. He is my life. In him I live and breathe and have my being. I'm just quoting Bible to you. Everything he stands over. He has preeminence in everything I do. The vacation we take, he has preeminence in. The places I go, he has preeminence in. The de every decision I make, somehow or another, he has the last say in all of those things. The Bible says that his rule 
is of such magnitude, the scripture says, that he literally rules nations. The Bible says that he determines the outcomes of wars. The Bible says that the king's heart is in his hand. It says that the economy runs on his schedule. Did you know that? That economies run on the Lord's schedule. The Bible says that he raises up leaders and he sets them down. And I could go on and on and on, but but the point I'm trying to make is, is that we as Christians, I'm not even talking about the world, we as Christians have lost the concept and the reality of his rulership. He rules because there's nothing neutral. You can't look at something and say, ah, that's neutral. No, it's not. There's nothing neutral. He's either redeemed it, he's redeeming it, or, or, or it's in another camp. Nothing is neutral. Now, let me just share with you about how we lost this. Can I just share, because this is, this is really on me, and I, I, I hope I'm making sense and you're getting a hold of a couple things here. How did we lose the concept of Jesus ruling? Well, the quick and simple answer is this. It was educated out of us. For most of us in this room, we have been through so many Babylonian processes that slowly and surely, because we spend hours in Babylon, whether it's the Babylonian TV or the Babylonian movie screen or the Babylonian school or whatever it is, some churches that are Babylon, we've spent so much time in Babylon that we've been educated in Babylon. And because we've been educated in Babylon, our worldview, our lenses have become Babylonian. So we, despite the fact we would say we love the Lord, despite the fact that we believe him to be king, despite the fact that you'll amen me with regards to what the Bible says, it is amazing to me how our lenses are so Babylonian. And we begin to make decisions and we filter it through these Babylonian lenses. And we got there, listen to me, we got there because we were educated there. We've been educated out of our Christian roots. And biblically that has always been the enemy's pattern. Can I just share with you in the Bible, there are certain things that took place that are always interesting to me. When the Jews were led into captivity, whenever they were led into captivity... The first thing the conquering nation would do would be to send their children to their schools. If you'll read about Daniel, in the book of Daniel, in the first chapter, the despotic king Nebuchadnezzar, the first thing he did when he got those boys into Persia was he sent them to Persian schools. When Alexander the Great went about conquering, the first thing he did was he imported all of his Greek thinking and philosophy and Aristotle and all of these things he imported it wherever he went and everybody went through that to where the Bible tells us that there were certain Jews as well as certain Christians who had become what the scripture says Hellenized now that doesn't mean that they met a woman named Helen and something happened what it means is they were Greeked to where they began to think like Plato they thought like Aristotle they thought like Socrates, but they weren't thinking like Jesus thinks. The conquering nations would do whatever they could to weed the concept of God's rulership out of their life. And I'll just share this with you. He who controls how you're educated controls the future. We didn't get here overnight. We got here through a, through a stealthily subtle plan of the enemy that has slowly and surely turned our nation 
turned the way we view things, turned the way we make decisions. It's turned everything into a position to where now, now we just want scraps from the table. Oh, please, please, let us put the Ten Commandments on a wall. Please, please, let us say grace over our food. We're looking from, for, from the Supreme Court to give us scraps from the table. And, and you know what? They may throw us a bone here and there. But truth of the matter is, I'm not looking for a bone. The Bible says Jesus is to rule it all. You see? And we got to get our lens right again. Because throwing the Ten Commandments up on a wall isn't going to make people moral. And saying grace over your lunch at lunchtime in a public school isn't going to make people moral. We've got to understand, Jesus has got to rule again. If God, if God rules and that's your lens then what's the outcome going to be? If Satan rules and he controls it, what will the outcome be? Because there's no such thing as neutral. And education is not just through the schools per se, but it's through the media, it's through our news. And let me tell you, I don't care if you watch liberal MSNBC or you watch conservative Fox News. It's all babbling at times. I'm I'm tired of it all. I'm hearing everybody, see, we sold our soul. Conservative Christianity sold its soul to the right. And we got to get it back. Because there are things on both sides of the political spectrum that are biblical issues that we need to be a prophetic voice and begin to declare in the earth. I'm tired of everybody acting like Rush Limbaugh is the Pope of evangelical Christianity. Now you may agree with a lot of what Rush says, but everything Rush says doesn't necessarily originate from there. And at the same time, you can find some liberal out there that's saying everything that seems to trip your switch, but it's not coming from here. It's not, it's not right. And we're entering into a season where we're going to have to choose a new leader. And I'm just telling you right off the bat, and I understand a church cannot endorse a political candidate because we're a 501c3 organization. I get it. But I'll tell you this. I ain't real keen on either one. And you know why I'm not real keen on either one? It's because my lenses see that Jesus is supposed to be ruling. But you know what all these things do? They all claim neutrality, don't they? Oh, we're just neutral. We're just neutral. Things aren't neutral. We got to break out of neutral. We we have we have we have bitten we have bitten the deception of neutrality. By following the neutrality trap, we declare that Jesus and his lordship has no jurisdiction over certain aspects of life. Are you hearing me? If you let someone say, well, this area is just neutral. No, it's not. Because if, you may, if I agree with you that that's neutral, then what you're saying is, is that neither Jesus nor Satan can rule over that. I, I, I'm out. I believe Jesus rules over everything. Because I gave him my life. Everything I do is about him. The enemy's slick, man. He is so slick. It is amazing how we, we, we who declare Jesus to be king, we are the ones that underwrite... The very things that are undermining our faith. Yes, we are. And I'm just telling you, we've got to awaken. And we've got to begin to recover. I realize this isn't going to happen overnight. But you and I, right here this morning, we've got to begin to recover the right lenses. 
It isn't just all of a sudden saying, whoops, I'm going to shift. It's about getting the right lenses on our eyes again so we can begin to see clearly. How do we recover all of this? Well, let me just share some things with you because my personal opinion is is that there's too many, and and I'll take the burden of it first. There are too many pastors, teachers, and Christians as a whole that assume our divine mandate is to save souls. Can I just share with you this? That it is important to see people saved, but that's not the goal. That's the door. That's the beginning. Seeing someone saved and won into the kingdom is a wonderful thing. That's where it starts, the translation from darkness unto light. But that is not the goal of why we exist. And the enemy, I believe, at times has even allowed us to exist at that level. Because he doesn't mind us, you know, getting people forgiven. But what he minds is, is when we start taking it back. He doesn't mind you being in poverty. What really bugs him is when you begin to prosper and give to the things of the kingdom. That really bugs him. That's why this is the gospel to the poor. Because we're trying to bring people out of their poverty and into prosperity. In order that they might even in their finances give glory to God. So saving souls is absolutely important. But that is the door. That is the starting place. After the starting place, people have to be delivered. How many of you know you can be forgiven, but you can still be living in hell? I mean, there are people walking around forgiven, but their whole life is hell. They don't have to worry about going there anymore. They're just living in it. You've got to get people delivered out of their bondages and out of their woundedness. In fact, you can't even begin to disciple people, which is what we'll talk about here in just a second. You can't disciple people until you get them delivered. You can't disciple a devil. It's hard enough to disciple your children, and you may think your children are devils sometimes, but I'm just, it's, you can't disciple a devil. You can't disciple a wound. You can't disciple an oppression. You've got to get people delivered. Then once you get them delivered, we can talk about discipling them. Discipling them is a part of helping them understand what it means to follow Christ. And a part of the discipling process is getting a renewed mind. You've heard me say this before. I've often wondered why God gives us a new heart when most of us need a brain transplant. He'd have been much more effective if he'd have just said, a new brain I give you. Because our heart isn't our problem, it's our brain. We need a renewed mind. And once all of these things begin to find their place and begin to find order then you can begin to recover comprehensive Christianity. You begin to recover what it is that we're supposed to see and how it is we're supposed to be. It starts with the renewing of our minds. Do you understand that the Great Commission says that you and I are to go, therefore, into all the nations and we're to teach them all things and we're to disciple them. Do you understand the the global, incredible sizable call that you and I have been given from God that we are to disciple nations. Have mercy, it's hard to keep control of the nursery. How can we rule? How can we rule over areas of life How can we rule over all these different things that come our way? How can we rule over these things if we can't rule ourselves and we 
We can't rule the little gardens we're given. See, that was Adam and Eve's problem. God gave them a little garden and said, let's see how you do with the garden before I give you the world. And they couldn't even handle their garden. That's been written over and over and over again. God gives us just this little thing called our own life, and, and, and a lot of us have trouble ruling just this house. If we can't rule this house, how in the world are we going to disciple nations? And the sad tragedy is, is that we are beginning to see the fruit of what that looks like in the earth. Now, we didn't get here overnight, and we aren't going to get out of it overnight. That's why the kingdom in the parables was oftentimes used analogously with a seed in the ground. It says the kingdom of God is like a seed that you put into the ground, and it begins to grow. And as it turns into this big tree, it says the birds of the air begin to nest in it. You don't grow a tree overnight. So none of this, none of this change that needs to take place can necessarily take place overnight but there's got to be a start to it all we didn't get here as a people and we didn't get here as a nation overnight but we have to recognize that if a generation doesn't choose to turn it around we're going to be in real trouble our kids are going to be in real trouble our grandkids are going to be in real trouble and i don't know if that bothers you but i think one of the greatest indicators of selflessness is when you can look at your children and then think about your grandchildren and begin to ask yourself, what must I do to hand something off to them in a little bit better shape than I got it? Or are we just going to leave them with the mess that we create? I think that's an important question. Now, most of you know I got this prophetic call in my life. <laughs> that's a surprise to you, isn't it? I, I can tend to be rather straight. But the, but the prophetic call, listen to me, the prophetic call, the Lord was really talking to me about this. The prophetic call is really about the future. I started to get a hold of this in a brand new way. You know, sometimes I'm invited to go speak different places, and oftentimes when I go, they want me to prophesy. And that's normally how God works through me and uses me, and I will do that even from time to time here in this local church. In fact, I'll just mention it to you. In January, Pastor Rod's coming back, and we're just going to have a big a prophetic ministry time for several days and so so we're going to make place and we've made place for that on numerous occasions here at legacy but for a lot of people when they hear the word prophetic they either think of end times or they think of somebody declaring their future both those things are true but i've begun to understand that the prophetic call is more than just declaring the future we must somehow some way begin to find the key to take back the future are you hearing me? We've got we've to take back our future. Take back our destiny. It's going to take more than getting prayer in public school. It's going to take more than just slapping Ten Commandments up on our walls. We're going to have to break out of our supplemental mentalities and attitude about our faith. And we're going to have to begin to make faith front and center. I believe the Lord said this to me. The Lord said, don't just declare the future. Take back the future. The Lord said it is time to be offensive and not just defensive. I mean, we're just trying to hold back the walls of all the crud that's going around us. And I think that the Lord isn't working in our defensive stature. I think the Lord is waiting for a Gideon's bunch to arise in the earth and decide they're going to take on the giants and the thousands. Because little is much when God is in it. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. 
He can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think. God doesn't need much. He just needs somebody who's willing. Somebody who gets a hold of that. I mean, why are we waiting on the Supreme Court? I mean, if we keep waiting on government to be our answer, we've already declared our worldview. Government is not my God. I'm not worried about the White House as much as I'm worried about my house and your house. We can get more done in these houses than that house will ever get done. And if there was ever a year that we can break out of the mentality that somehow we're saddled to some political party and we just become a prophetic people and we begin to declare and take back that which is ours. Don't you wait for the right president. It is time God's saying that we get the right people in the earth. He's just looking for that covenant of salt. I mean, remember that, I think it was with Abraham. God was ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. It was that whole story. And they begin this, this talk. And I don't know, was it Lot or Abraham? I don't remember which one now. He just said, Lord, if I find 40 people, would you spare it? God says, if you'll find 40, I'll spare it. Apparently, he couldn't find 40, so he dropped it to 30. Finally got a drop down to 10. And the Lord said, if you can find 10 righteous people, I'll spare it. It doesn't take much. I don't want to hand my country, I don't want to hand my city, I don't want to hand this region. I'm not going to, as God gives me breath, we cannot hand it over to the spirit of the enemy. We've got to begin to do what we need to do in order to make sure that we hand it off to a generation. And when it's my time to go and be with the Lord, I want to go clean-handed and clean-hearted that I can look at my sons or my daughter or my grandchildren and say, I've done my best. I did all I knew how to do. I stood, and now I'm going to hand it to you. Now it's your turn. But we're going to have to have a generation that begins that. How long will we sit in the back of the bus? How long? How long? How long will we just keep letting it erode before we just arise and, and again, I'm talking about what we can do. I'm tired of waiting on political action. Political action isn't taking us anywhere. It is time to get miracles back into the equation. It is time to get some prophetic things back into the equation. It is time to believe that if we touch God, He can do anything because He rules over it all. 100,000 signatures may be great. All I need is one signature that says Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to get, I'm just going to share just some things that are just recapitulating things and another couple things that God's stirring in me. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't hold it in anymore. I just had to share it. All I'm asking you to do this morning, I'm not asking you to write a check. Can you say amen? I'm not asking you to go do something out of here. I'm asking you just to pray and get, get the burden to get the lens back on right. There are just several things that the Lord said. He's pleased, I think, in some areas. In other areas, I think he's just dealing with me in. Number one is this vision process we do here. I, I, think, I think I may have stumbled into it accidentally, but sometimes God just orders the steps of the righteous, and praise God, you can even fall into good things. But what we do here by, by winning people and taking them through the cross and discipling them, and ultimately, hopefully, making them profitable workers and laborers in the harvest. All of those things, I think, are absolutely essential. And one of the things that I like about what we do here is this. That we believe in the present power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the cross 
is there, but it is applied through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I believe any people that's going to change a region or change a nation or ultimately change a world, they're going to have to have the power of the Holy Spirit working in their life. And so the Holy Spirit's up front and central. We believe, we, we want him to be here. We want everything he's carrying with him to come be a part of what we're up to. If it's available in him, I'm going to need it. If the early disciples had to have the fullness of the Spirit in order to turn Jerusalem around, how much more are we going to need the Spirit of God to turn our holy city around? So the vision is important. It's important because I believe all of that helps us begin to change that lens. Secondly, I was considering and been considering probably for six to eight months how I was going to begin to train my my son Tyler, he told me as he was away that he felt called to the ministry and wanted to begin to pursue the ministry. But you know what? I learned that you can send someone off to seminary and it can do them more damage than good. I went to seminary and about 90% of what I learned at seminary, I had to ditch. I mean, I read Hippolytus to you. Most of you went, oh. That's what you learn at seminary about people like Hippolytus. You know, I learned, I learned all the popes, and I wasn't even Catholic. I don't know what that was about. I mean, you just learn, you learn crazy stuff. None of it's been useful to me at all. And all it does is it puts a lens on your eyes that causes you to look a certain way, and it's not the right lens. Tracy will tell you, I got out of seminary, and you know what they value in graduate school? If you have a critical spirit, you ought to go to graduate school. People with critical spirits always do well at graduate school. Because everything they hand you, they want you to criticize. And so can you imagine three years just reading hundreds and hundreds of books and, and you write papers on all of this. And the only thing you're, you're asked to do is you're asked to be critical, cr- criticize it, review it. And so for three years, this is what's really funny. You're 23 years old and you're critiquing something from a guy that's got more education and probably three times older than you are, but they look at you at 22 or however old and say, critique it. And so the only thing you're learning is how to be critical because you sure aren't doing anything to, to change the way this gentleman thinks. And so you just come out of that with a real negative critical spirit. And so for the rest of your life, you've been trained with these lenses to see everything skeptically, to see everything kind of askance. And that's how you were trained. And my God, it took a deliverance. It took a 10-hour deliverance session. Someone need to jump on my chest and cast that critical spirit out of me. You do. You've got to be delivered from it. You think it's your personality. It's probably a devil. And so I started to, I got off on a sidetrack. I started to Consider how am I going to train my son because I'm not going to send him off to some Babylonian religious place and let them taint his spirit. And so we began to look into this this new educational aspect of Minister's Training Institute. And uh, coming in the fall, and I'm going to share some more about this. And it's it's for training ministers. Maybe maybe some of you would be interested in that. But we're going to get people trained right in order to begin to teach right, teach appropriately, and get the people of God where they need to be. It's going to take another generation probably of ministers to come up to help turn the body of Christ around. And so I'm just going to do that. I'm just, I'm just going to start Ministers Training Institute here 
It's accredited, it's all of those things, and, and I'll give you more information in the coming days. For many people, it won't be something you'd consider because, I mean, this is real deal training with regards to the ministry. But the third thing I wrote down here is that we've got to begin to teach the body of Christ worldview. Now, I have even barely opened the can this morning, but it is really on my heart because of these incidents that took place these last couple of weeks. To begin to somehow, some way, and I think this is a part of my call, is to train the people of God, the body of Christ, on, on the subject of worldview and how to get these lenses changed. Because life is not going to work, God is not going to move, we'll not see signs and wonders, we'll not see miracles, unless we get these lenses right. This is what the enemy does, he hands us these left lenses, we put them on, and then we wonder why we see things so funny, so differently. And we're going to have to begin to pursue some areas. And I think one of the things, and I have resisted this and resisted this, and I don't think it's next week. I'll just tell you this. But I believe that God is asking us in every area of life to begin to retool, retrain people and how they think. The Bible says, as a man thinks, so he is. And we've got to begin to do that on a, on a long-term lot larger scale and I tell you what I'd like to get I tell you this is where I'd like to start I'd, li I'd like to get if I could get just a quality DVD camera and we could begin to just create DVDs and maybe send them out for free I don't know but we but we got to start putting things in people's hands that are getting them off the pablum and getting them with the right lenses on their head they need to begin to hear what it is that needs to shift and change because right now, most of what goes on on television or DVDs primarily is viewed as either marketing or evangelism or money raising. Now, just, I'm just trying to tell it like it is. You know what? The TV is a great tool that I believe God released the knowledge in the earth for that to be created. And the whole reason the television was created, the whole reason the internet was created, the whole reason technology comes into the earth is from God who gives it to us that it might be redeemed back into the kingdom in order that his rulership and his kingly stature cannot just be declared but can be implemented in life. I mean, we need to rewire the way the church thinks. Who's going to rewire? I'm not so presumptuous to think I'm the only one, but I'm the only one here this morning. Maybe you'll help me, and then there'll be a good number of folks that'll help. But we've got to begin to rewire. We're not gonna, we're not gonna reach the world till we rewire the church. And not only just rewire them, but rewire them Pentecostal style. I'm grateful for my Baptist brethren. I'm grateful for them. God bless them. Love them. They've done incredible things. God has used them phenomenally and still does. God bless them. I mean that sincerely. There, there isn't any sarcasm meant in that at all. I just always have wanted somebody with a little fire in their bones, though, that, that understood the miraculous aspects of the gospel to begin to put that feature into all of the rest and begin to help rewire the body of Christ. Listen to me, folks. I don't believe you have to check your brain out at the door to be a Pentecostal. You heard the old joke about the guy who wanted the brain surgery? And he went in to see the doctor, and the doctor pointed on the shelf there. And he said, uh, he said I, I, I have several options for you. 
Uh, this is a Methodist brain. It's $5,000. This is a Baptist brain. It's $10,000. This brain over here is $20,000. The guy looked at him and he said, $20,000? Why, why is it so expensive? He said, it's a charismatic brain. It's never been used before. I can, I can tell that joke because I am one. You don't have to check your brain out at the door. But the problem is the people who pick up their brain lose the miraculous. The people who want to elevate some sense of, of reason within the scriptures lose the concept of signs and wonders and miracles. We've got to rewire the way the body of Christ thinks. We're embarrassed about the Holy Spirit. We're embarrassed about signs and wonders. We always feel like we've got to do God's PR work, and God's been doing his PR work now for thousands of years. He doesn't need my help. But someone's got to step up and begin to do that. So I'm talking about creation of DVDs and and doing things just, just educationally. We've got to figure out a way to rewire the way people think. And fourthly, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, I am, starting to, I am starting to weigh, and some of you have mentioned this to me through the last six years, and I have resisted it. I know, I can hear a laughter. But we've got to think about how we're going to educate our kids. We've got to start thinking about that. I don't know what that means. I know for some of you, you're going right now, he's going to start a school. He's going to start. I don't know that I'm going to do that. I don't know what I'm going to do yet. But I can tell you this, to get a nation back, we're going to have to think seriously about what that means when it comes to inputting a generation. Because I am tired of sending kids to get Babylonian messages and then wondering why Christianity isn't working in their life. I understand, I understand we have godly people. I know folks here that go to public school and you work and you teach and you do your best to be salt and light. I respect that. I really do. I know there are other teachers in here that have, have jobs at Christian schools. And I respect what they're doing as well. I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at anybody. I'm just simply saying it is time we got the worldview job done. We got to start getting this done. Because I'm telling you, we cannot let a generation grow up just sort of mamby-pamby and not knowing who's in charge or thinking that somehow it's all neutral or thinking that as long as we've got the Ten Commandments up and we say a little prayer here and there, that that's going to fix everything. That ain't going to fix anything. What's going to fix it all is when we begin to get the lenses and begin to understand that God's rulership can come into where I work. It can come into where I play. It can come into the decisions I make. It can come into the economy. It can come into, it can come into the way I, I view government. It can come into my athletic endeavors. It can come into everything. There is nothing outside of the scope of him being able to touch it. And if he touches it, he will redeem it and he will make it right and it will operate as it was designed to operate. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I'm not doing a very good job of this, but, but I'm just telling you, it is, this is, it is so critical. The last thing I'm going to share with you and then I'm done. We, we need to get a spirit of optimism. I hear... So much of how the world is falling apart, and it is. But here's the good news. The Bible says that as the kingdoms of this world fall apart, the kingdom of our Lord and Christ can begin to arise. 
we got to get a spirit of optimism, folks. Do you understand what I mean by that? We, this is going to sound arrogant, and I don't mean it, it's, I say it humbly, we're the only ones that got the answer. Do you understand that? Your friend, your family member, your coworker, your schoolmate may look like they have it all together as they're living however they want to live, but they don't have the answer. We're the only ones that really have the answer. And we've got thousands of years of fruit that we can point to to prove it. There ought to be a spirit of optimism on us. I'm telling you right now, there's something that can begin to arise in us with meager means, with little at our disposal, with nothing more than a vision. That's enough for God to use in order for us to begin to prevail in the Babylon you and I live in. We got to get a spirit of optimism on this thing. If this world falls apart, all that means is somebody's got to pick up the pieces. If people's lives aren't working, all that means is they need to find somebody who can plug them in to the right sequence in order to get them in the right direction. It's time we quit fearing what all is going on and feeling timid about who we are. And it's time we started feeling like, you know what? God is in me. His word is true. And, and we are the only ones who really have an answer. They may make fun of us, but there'll be a day they'll come see us. I guarantee it. It always works that way. Send a hurricane to New Orleans, and I'll guarantee you, they look for the church. They ain't looking for government. There's going to be another Katrina, and I'm not talking about a hurricane, but there's going to be an economic Katrina. There's going to be a market Katrina. It happens. We're not immune from these things. There's going to be another terrorist happening someday. There's going to be some cataclysmic event that's going to take place, I will assure you, that will arrest the attention of our nation and of our region. And here's the good news. We will mourn with those who mourn. We will grieve with those who grieve. We are not immune to the calamities of the day. But I can tell you this, when the dust settles, it's still the church. It's still the church that carries the only answer. And we can do great things if we get these lenses right. I remember reading in Wesley's journal when he was a young man and he worked there in England, he saw the plight of the children in the coal mines. And so he went in and he began to educate. You know, in those days, not everybody went to public schools. And so he began to educate the children on their time off as they would come and they would labor in coal mines. He would educate them. You know the most amazing thing, and, and people don't ever put the dots together, but I'm just telling you that out of, out of the education of those children in coal mines, just ordinary everyday people all over England, that eventually people like Wilberforce, when he began to declare that things like slavery were despicable and it needed to change and nobody wanted to change in the United Kingdom, there was a generation that had been schooled by Wesley that arose. And finally, they reached the place where there was enough salt and enough light that they banned that despicable practice in all of the United Kingdom. Do you understand? We've got to quit worrying about tomorrow, and we need to start worrying about 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. We're looking at the future, and it's time we took it back. I don't know how that's going to work, but it starts with us getting these lenses right. I mean, we can talk about whatever program. I know that's how we work it in America. Tell me the program, Pastor. No, the program is... Is he going to rule in every area of your life 
That's, that's the first program. Because if he ain't ruling in every area of your life, then you got no business looking at someone else saying, is he ruling in yours? But if we get that taken care of and get a little fruit under our belt, and then we begin to put into motion some other things, I will assure you it will capture the attention of this nation. Take just a quick look around you right now. I don't know how many folks are here this morning. I don't know, maybe, maybe 175, 200 folks are here this morning. Count the children in the other room. Let me just share this with you. We right here can change the world if we get these lenses right. Stand with me, will you? I'm just going to take a moment. I won't take but 60 seconds before I pray and dismiss. But if there's anyone here this morning and you've not made the decision to put Jesus Christ on the throne specifically in your life. Maybe there's areas of your life that are compartmentalized. And this morning you would say, you know, I need to, I need to open up every door to every room and every closet. And Jesus needs to be king. Paul, in Romans 10, taught us what it meant to come to the Lord. He said, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He didn't say confess with your mouth that Jesus is Savior. He said confess that Jesus is Lord. He is master. He is king. He said, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And before I pray and release you this morning, we're just going to give an invitation real simply just like that. If you need to come today and you need to let Jesus be king, maybe over some rooms that he wasn't king over. Maybe you've never opened up your house to him at all. And this morning you're willing to say, I want Jesus to be king. I want him to rule over all my life. I can't make a difference in anyone else's life till he first makes a difference in my life. I only have just a few seconds here. It really shouldn't be long. He's knocking at your door. And if that's you, the scripture says this. That if we'll confess him before men, he'll confess us before the Father. The Bible also says if we deny him before men, he'll do the same. So here at Legacy, on most occasions, we give invitations and just ask people to slip out and to come and just stand with me here at the bottom of these steps. If that's you and you're ready to make some compartments his domain, before you go this morning, I want you to come right now. See, some are already coming. You won't even have to come by yourself. If you've closed the door off to some areas and it's time you want to open them back up, then now's the time. First time or 100th time. But we want to make sure that he's Lord, he's king, he's everything. Just another moment or two, I promise, I, I'm, I'm Orlando bound. I understand what it means to want to be able to get on with the day, but there's nothing more important. My vacation even, even isn't as, as important as this moment right now. I'm going to enjoy it, but it's not as important as you being right. So I'll wait for you. How about it? Just another moment or two. Holy Spirit. You're obviously talking to people. Now I ask, Lord, that you just finish talking. If there's someone else here, Holy Spirit, that you're knocking on their door. We don't want to leave them out. We want them to have an ability 
to say out loud publicly, Jesus is King. Lord, draw them. Do what I can't do right now in these last seconds, Lord. Do that. Will you please? Will you please? Will you please? Will you please? Thank you, Lord. I want everybody just lift your hands to the Lord. Those of you in the congregation, extend your hands out toward these who've gathered. And I just want those of you that are down front right now, but everybody, I want everybody to pray, but especially those of you here that are with me down front. I just want you to pray this prayer. I'm going to lead you in it, but I want you to link your sincerity and your genuineness to it. Most of you I'm looking at right now, you know, you know a lot. I mean, I mean I'm looking at people who are seasoned and, and have known the Lord. And you're just, I know most of you here are dealing with compartments. But I'm going to lead you in a prayer, and then I, I want you to be sure before the day's over, you, you go before the Lord and put it in your own words. But you link your sincerity up with me right now, will you please, as we all pray and say, Heavenly Father, you've talked to my heart, and you've exposed some areas, some rooms, some compartments that I kept you out of. I'm opening up my house. I want Jesus to be king over it all, to rule over everything. That no area of my life or my circumstance will be untouched by your rulership. I declare now, in a very genuine way, Jesus is Lord over everything. Lord, take the lenses I've worn, tear them off my head, and replace them with brand new ones let me see how you see let me function like you would want me be king over everything I'm sorry and I repent for keeping those doors closed they're wide open now live big in me I pray in Jesus name Amen. Amen. Let's give the king. He is the king. Amen. Amen. And amen and amen and amen. Now I know, I know this, this, this is going to apply to y'all personally in a number of ways. So don't lose the personal application. But folks just out here, would you pray? I'm asking you to pray. I'm, I'm going away to have some fun. I'll be back next Sunday. But you pray for me. I hope you do. God knows I need it. But you know what? The Lord is stirring in our midst about what it means to live comprehensively. People don't anymore. They're they're, they're, they're just compartmentalized and disconnected. And I'm telling you, God wants you to go to your business, your career. God wants you to go to your school. God wants you to go to your relationships. I'm telling you, he wants to be king over it all. But we thought that somehow or another this was neutral. It's not. Now, you may not understand it all or know it all, but the Holy Spirit's going to help us. And we need to begin to pray that he will give us witty ideas. And not that we just establish a program, but he gives us a strategy. I'm Look, this is a battle, and I want a strategy to win a war over a generation that's got to be rewired in order to see victory come again. 
I don't believe anything so lost that it can't be recovered. I don't believe anything so far gone it can't come back. I believe Jesus is waiting for a generation to bring his enemies to him so that they might be his footstool. So let's, let's, let's pray. We've got to begin to pray that direction. Amen? Lord, cause us, cause us, Lord, to be sensitized to what it means to see your rulership go out of these doors and into job sites and careers and businesses and schools and, Lord, activities and hobbies and every area of life. Lord, help us, Lord. Help us be sensitized to this. Lord, I believe there's a people here that really want that to be demonstrated in their life. Lord, let it be demonstrated not just in raw facts or information, but let the power of the Spirit come to these things. Lord, let us move in the power of the Spirit with regards to all of these areas. And Lord, we want to be teachable through your word, and we want to be leadable by your spirit. So Lord, do it in these people. Give them a great week, I pray, as they begin to see your rulership all around them, I ask in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Give the Lord one more hand clap. Amen. Hey, don't forget, don't forget the middle of the week, Wednesday night's going to be great. Be here on Wednesday night. And if not, we'll see you next Sunday. God bless. You're released.